But let's grab God's Word and turn in our Bibles to the book of Acts, chapter 21, as we continue in our series entitled Unstoppable, seeing God's work and mission uh, moving. And, and we see it not only moving in the life of the Apostle Paul and his com- companions and the early church, but we must recognize this morning that, that the unstoppable work hasn't stopped God is at work in our midst, in our communities, in our homes, and in our lives. And and if we aren't seeing that, it isn't that God has, uh, in essence, uh, taken a furlough or a vacation. It is that we are missing what God is doing in and through uh, His Word and, and through the gospel ministry of His Spirit. And we've got to ask the question, if we're not seeing it, what are we not doing Why are we not well positioned to see that take place? And this morning, we're going to talk about a way that we position ourselves to see the moving of God in great and wondrous ways. Now, we've been following the Apostle Paul. For the last uh, five or six chapters, the Apostle Paul has been on journeys, missions trips. He's done three of them thus far, and he's at the end of his third missionary journey. And each of these journeys have centered around the gospel and proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ to a lost world. Now, he's gone into all of these different cities, primarily in the area of Asia Minor, which is modern-day Turkey, and Macedonia, which is modern-day Greece. And he's gone about city upon city, prominent cities and lesser-known cities, and proclaimed the gospel of Jesus Christ. And during that time, there have been many who have reviled against him. There have been many who have rejected the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. But in each city, there have been some, even at times just a few, who have called upon the name of the Lord and have been saved. And as a result of that, Paul sought to it that churches would be established. And each of these different missionary journeys involved either establishing churches or strengthening the churches that were there so that the gospel of Jesus Christ could continue on. Now, in this third missionary journey, he's had two things he's wanted to do. He went about going to the cities he had already established churches in and gone to encourage them and to strengthen them. But the second thing that he had done amidst these Gentile churches that he had started was to take a collection, a collection that was going to be delivered uh, to the Jerusalem church that was living under a significant famine at the time. And there was great material need by the Christians in Jerusalem. And Paul saw this as a great opportunity to unite Gentiles and Jews together that would show the Jews who thought Gentiles were less than dogs that under Christ and through Christ, We no longer are Jew or Greek or Gentile. We're no longer slave or free, but that we are all unified under the banner of Christ our Lord. And so Paul has been looking forward to Jerusalem. In fact, three chapters before chapter 21 and chapter 18 and 19, on different occasions, he says, I am compelled to go to Jerusalem. Now, we studied last week that three different times, the people of God say, you shouldn't go to Jerusalem. There's going to be trouble. There's going to be hardship. There's going to be all kinds of issues. And Paul says, I want to go. And we believe the biggest reason why is that first, he wanted to bring the money that had been collected. What a great testimony of what was going on in the Gentile churches than to bring a a love gift that would uh, serve to meet the needs of the people in the Jewish uh, church in Jerusalem. The second thing is I think Paul loved Jerusalem. He loved Jerusalem. It had been about five and a half years since he had been in the holy city. As one who had grown up as a Pharisee, the city of Jerusalem no doubt held great esteem in his heart and his mind. And as he approaches Jerusalem and as he comes into the city and interacts with believers, what he thought I think was going to take place begins to start happening, but then quickly turns to something that is disappointing. Have you ever looked forward to a trip or someone coming to make a visit, or some momentous occasion that you looked toward to, you planned, you dreamed about as it was approaching, only to find out that when it got there, it fell apart, that what you anticipated that was going to happen didn't, and at the end of it, you weren't sure it was worth all the hoopla in the first place. That's what the Apostle Paul feels in his opening moments in the city of Jerusalem. And yet, what we're going to see is in this very odd passage, quite frankly, and as as I share it with you in a, in a couple of moments, you're going to ask, what in the world are you going to do with a text like this? How are you going to address this thing? Because it seems in some ways to be an odd text altogether. But we know 
that Luke wrote this down for a reason, and the Holy Spirit uh, uh, anointed this passage and inspired it to be a part of the Word of God, that there's something we can glean and we can draw from. And, and that of which I want you to draw from this text is the issue of humility this morning. Humility. And we're going to see in Paul's life how humility uh, reigned in his life and why humility needs to be something that is a part of our lives this morning. And so as you read this text, I want you to be thinking, how is Paul's humility being lived out? And, and in some ways, when we experience some of the things that Paul does, how can we show humility? And for what reason should we show humility as a result of what Paul models for us? So let's look at uh, Acts chapter 21, starting in verse 15. You can find our passage on page 930, and I'll read uh, through verse 26. It says, After these days we got up and went up to Jerusalem, and some of the disciples from Caesarea went with us, bringing us to the house of Nason of Cyprus. He was an early disciple with whom we should lodge. When we had come to Jerusalem, the brothers received us gladly. On the following day, Paul went in with us to James, and all the elders were present. After greeting them, he related one by one the things that God had done among the Gentiles through his ministry. And when they heard it, they glorified God. And they said to him, You see, brother, how many thousands there are among the Jews of those who have believed. They are zealous for the law, and they have been told about you that you teach all the Jews who are among the Gentiles to forsake Moses, telling them not to circumcise their children or to walk according to our customs. What then is to be done? They will certainly hear that you have come. Do therefore what we tell you. We have four men who are under a vow. Take these men and purify yourself along with them and pay their expenses so that they may shave their heads." Thus all will know that there is nothing in what they have been told about you, but that you yourselves also live in observance of the law. But as for the Gentiles who have believed, we have sent a letter with our judgment that they should abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols and from blood and from what has been strangled and from sexual immorality. Then Paul took the men, and the next day he purified himself along with them, went into the temple, giving notice when the days of purification would be fulfilled and the offering presented for each one of them. Let's stop there and let's pray. Father God, I ask your blessing on our time in the Word. Thank you for our time around your table to remember the finished work of Jesus Christ for our sins. Thank you for uh, the time of singing that declares and articulates our love for you and our great gratitude for all that you've done. Now turn our attention as arrogant and prideful people, as people who often think higher of ourselves than we ought to. Lord, I am the chief of sinners in this way. So teach us what it means to be humble. Teach us how humility can move and change in people's lives and allow the gospel to move forward, we pray. In Christ's name we pray these things. Amen and amen. A couple years ago, I was at a basketball game for one of my sons and a team came into the gym and they were all wearing the same shirt, which wasn't uncommon, but on, back of, on the back of the shirt was a saying that, I gotta be honest with you, at first I didn't understand. It said this, we, me, and I'm looking going, okay, you know, are they uh, conflicted on who they are or what's going on? I was wondering if that was their nickname, the we, me's, which sounded kind of weird. And then it started to dawn on me that the symbol in between uh, the we and the me meant something. And I was too prideful to ask what that was. And it took me a while. And I'll be honest, I got in the car after the game and it finally dawned on me. We is greater than me. A statement of humility. A statement that said that the, because we're a part of a team, that my personal desires, my personal wants, my personal statistics on the basketball team were less than or not of as great of importance as us as a collective group, as us as a team. And so I'm going to allow myself to diminish so that the team and its pursuits and its, its glory could be raised. And what a great reminder for young people who are a part of a team. It's not about us. Even though at times we hear people in professional sports that will say they're the greatest, we no doubt have heard that from two teams as they anticipate playing in the big game. But what we need to understand and know that in life, it is usually we that is greater than me. But we don't live that way. 
We don't live like we are dependent on the greater. We don't live with the thought that our desires and our prerogatives should be laid aside so that we can, with greater good and greater effectiveness, uh, be a part of something greater than ourselves. If there was anybody who should have been able to walk into a room with swagger, if there was anybody who should have been known as a celebrity, if there's anybody who could have been called the MVP for Christianity, it would have been the Apostle Paul. And yet when he comes into the great city of Jerusalem, he comes in not with a swagger. He doesn't come in boasting about himself. He doesn't come in with great confidence in who he is. And he doesn't come seeking accolades and awards. He comes in with humility as his mindset and humility as his goal. And the reason why is that the church and the gospel of Jesus Christ was better and more important than anything he would do by himself. And so he chose humility. And he wasn't the first one to come up with this idea. He had seen this modeled. He had seen this modeled by his Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. In fact, in Philippians chapter 2, Paul tells the Philippian church that we are to do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. That we should seek the needs and interests of others instead of ourselves. And he goes on and he says, the reason why is that our mind and our attitude should be that that was of Christ Jesus, who being in the very nature God did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing, being found in the form of a servant. He served and he loved and he was obedient to death, even death on a cross. And so the first model of humility is the model of Jesus Christ who is God. If anybody should have been called the greatest, if anybody should have had everything said about him and boasted about him, it should have been Jesus. But Jesus shows us that the way of Christ is that of service. The way of Christ is humility. Oh, how our world needs humility. We need humility in our politics. We need humility in our sports. We need humility in our communities. We need humility in our families. We need humility in our marriages. And might I say this morning, we need humility in the church. Far too many of us in the church are more concerned about ourselves than we are the cause of Christ or those around us. But I want you to understand this morning that humility is more than you not bragging or boasting about yourself. It is more than just thinking bad thoughts of yourself instead of good thoughts. C.S. Lewis put it this way. He said the following, true humility is not thinking less of yourself. It is thinking of yourself less. Paul was a man who was greatly gifted by God. You and I are people that are greatly gifted by God. And we shouldn't diminish those gifts and, and with pious, uh, fake humility say that we're no good, we're good for nothing. That's not true. God has created you and I for a purpose. And we should uh, be excited about those gifts. We should use those gifts and at times even receive a, a degree of glory or renown for those gifts. But we should never allow the spotlight that is reserved for God to be put on us. We should never allow the spotlight to find itself on us at the demise or the hurt or hindrance of others. Paul had every reason to have a spotlight put on him. But for the sake of the gospel and the sake of weaker brothers around him, he sought to choose to honor them instead of himself. Humility needs to be the hallmark of all Christians. And I'm going to give you a reason why. Even before we get to my three points, let me give you three reasons why every Christian has to, not should, has to be humble. Why do we have to be humble? Because I'll tell you this. You can't be a good Christian if you are an arrogant Christian. The only way we will be good at living out the Christian life is if humility is a part of who we are. If it is what dictates all that we do. And let me explain why. Number one, write this down. Humility is necessary to experience faith. Humility is necessary to experience faith. You cannot come to know Jesus Christ 
as your Savior unless you recognize that you are a needy, weak, sinful person and that God alone is able to redeem you and to cleanse you of all unrighteousness. Humility precedes faith. You cannot have faith without humility because an arrogant person has no need for faith. They have no need for God because they can do it on their own, in their own mindset and thinking. And so when you came to Christ, you humbly said, I need you, Christ, to do what I can't do. That's a very humbling statement for us as Christians. Number two, you need humility in order to worship. You need humility in order to worship. So you gathered in this morning. And this morning you came to a building dedicated to someone else than yourself. You involved yourself with people who were here to uh, talk about and, and, and pray to and worship someone who isn't you and isn't me. You heard songs that were sung not about you, but about someone else. People got up and they prayed prayers not to you, but to someone else. And now you're hearing someone open the Word and talk and devote his entire message to someone else and not yourself. To be a part of worship is to say for, for at least this time, hopefully for much longer because we worship at all times and in all places, not just in a building, but for at minimum for th- Sunday morning, we worship and what we are saying is life isn't about us. It's about Christ. It's about God and His kingdom. And if I'm going to worship, then I must make myself smaller. And the one whom I worship, a whole lot bigger. Number three, we need humility to obey. So you're going to hear things today. You're going to hear that God's Word is going to say, Hey, brothers and sisters in Christ, if you want to be servants of God, if you want to bring glory to the kingdom of God, if you want to move in the lives of people for the gospel of Jesus Christ, then you're going to need to do some things. And humility is going to say, not my will, God, but your will be done. I have ideas of what I want to do with my week, God, but your word is reordering my life, and it's calling me to do something different. And if I'm going to obey, then it's a recognition that, God, you are the master and I am the servant. And so you can't obey without humility. And so there's this recognition that the Christian life is necessitates humility. N- another one, you need humility to love. You need humility to love. Why in the world would you seek the good of someone else if your eyes and your focus is on yourself? Because love usually means a level of sacrifice. Why in the world would I sacrifice for someone else when I'm too busy trying to get what I want, my desires and all of that? Let me help you married couples. You will never have a strong marriage if one or both of you are arrogant people. And arrogance is found in life revolves around me, my wants, my needs, where marriage is a picture of beauty and love is that we sacrifice and we're humble and say, not about me, but it's about you. It's about Christ living through me so that I can love you in ways that I never would be able to without Him. Finally, you cannot serve God or Christ in the church without humility. The very essence of being part of a local church says that I am a part of the body. I'm a hand, I'm a foot, I'm a finger, I'm, I'm a shoulder. Whatever you are, whatever part you play is a recognition when you're a part of a local church that you are a part, not the whole. And so humility is the very essence of the Christian life. We cannot live the Christian life with any kind of um, success without humility being a part of all that we do. And yet, sadly, some of the most haughty people I've ever known at times were followers of Jesus Christ. Which seems odd because our Savior was not a haughty Savior. The people we learn about in the Scriptures who followed God were not haughty people. And yet we struggle with this, and I am here to tell you, as Paul once did, I am the chief sinner with regards to it. It's easy to look at things and say, look at what I've done. 
But then I recognized through the words of Scripture that apart from Jesus, I could do nothing. And neither can you. And so we need to recognize and understand humility needs to be a part of our lives. Well, how so? Because humility isn't just you not bragging about yourself. It's far more than that. Notice what Paul shows us. There are three things I want to draw from this text. Number one, humility means sharing more about God's success than my own. It means that I'm sharing more about God's success than my own. Verse 17 starts out, When we had come to Jerusalem, the brothers received us gladly. On the following day, Paul went in with us to James and the elders of the Jerusalem church, and they were all present. After greeting them, he related one by one the things of God that God had done among the Gentiles through his ministry. And when they heard it, they glorified God. Now let's stop there. Paul comes in, and the first thing that he talks about is all that has transpired. Now they greet one another. And we know that the greeting says that they love one another, they care about one another, they're close to one another. And so the greeting finishes up, they're in the foyer of the house, if you will. Good to see you, a couple hugs take place, they sit down. And the first thing that comes out of Paul's mouth is he wants to relate to James and the elders what has transpired since the last time he was in Jerusalem, about five and a half to six years. And so Paul begins to relate to what God is doing. Now, I want you to recognize a couple things about this. First of all, there's a priority to what Paul has done. The first thing he talks about is Christ. Let me ask you, where is Christ and the gospel ministry at in your conversations with people, especially those who are followers of Christ? When you gather as a small group, when you gather here as a church, when does Christ get brought up? When does Christ and what Christ is doing in your life or in the life of other people start to come out in your conversations? Is it number one? Is it two? Is it three? What is the number one thing? For many of us, it's our family, it's our kids, it's our work, it's what's going on in the world. And Christ is a fourth or fifth or sixth or maybe he's not even brought up at all. Paul tells us that humility says, let's stop thinking about our lives and our world and let's start talking about Christ more quickly. I always loved early on, and he does it all the time, and at times it can drive me nuts. But Mario, our student ministry pastor, every time he gets together with you, he'll ask the question, tell me what God's doing in your life. I don't want to talk about what God's doing in my life. I want to get to the real business. And Mario says, no, let's take some time, and let's talk about what God's doing in your life. Now I'll tell you, part of the reason why I don't like that, and why many of you wouldn't like that, is because we're not sure what God's doing in our lives. We don't have anything to say about what God's doing in our lives. And we're going back thinking, how many months, how many years do I got to go back to think about something? And I love that about Mario. The intentionality of that. That tells you, listen, God should be at work in our lives. And it should be something right away that, that at, at, at the drop of a hat, we are able to articulate, this is what God is doing. This is how God is at work, whether in my life, or in the life of those around me. After they greet, Paul is excited to talk about what God is doing. Notice next, there's a peculiarity, if you will, or a particularness to how Paul responds to this. Notice it says he related one by one. And so he tells the guys he could have done, and this is what we would do, well, we need to talk about what God's doing in our lives. Well, I'll just say you, God is good all the time, and all the time, God is good. All right, let's go to dinner. He's up to great things. No, it says one by one. The idea here is with great detail and with specific um, details to uh, each scenario, he's walking through all that has transpired. And we've got to be careful because what we do when we talk about spiritual things is we gloss over it. Hey, listen, uh, God's up to some great things. But then we're asked about the ball game. And with pinpoint accuracy, we can remember the moment, the time when such and such happened, when the bad call took place, when the spectacular a play took place, and we speak to that. And we'll talk about that tomorrow. We'll talk about what our kids did uh, in, their, uh, in their sporting event or, or whatever our hobby is, whatever we love the most, we'll talk with detail, great detail 
about the importance of it. And yet when it comes to Christ and what's going on, someone will say, what's going on at your church? And yeah, good things are happening. Well, what? I don't know. What are you doing in your small group? Well, we get together, we pray and all of that. I had a friend years ago. We were, I grew up here at the church for those that don't know that. And we had come back from a youth retreat. And back when I was in um, uh, high school, way back in the olden days, the uh, that was a joke, by the way, but uh, we had night church. And one of the things we would do is we'd come back from the retreat around 4 o'clock, and night church would roll around around 6. And every time we went on a retreat, the pastor would want the young people to come up and share what had transpired. And I remember my friend had been asked by the youth pastor to share what had, had gone on. And it was his job. So he sang some songs and he gets up and it was on this stage. I'll never forget it. And he gets up and he stands up and, and, and he says, I'm here to share with you what happened this weekend. Well, we drove somewhere and uh, we ate some stuff. John shared some stuff. We played some games. And then on the last night, it got kind of serious and we prayed about some stuff. And then I did it. And everyone looked like you're looking at me. What in the world just happened? I have no idea. So John comes running up knowing that this thing has totally fallen apart. My youth pastor gets up and he says, what the young man was trying to tell you was he came to know Jesus Christ this, this week. But he didn't articulate it in that way. He spoke in such general, generalities, and, and I'll give you, give him the benefit of the doubt. Man, when he got up there, his eyes got real big, okay? And he was not ready to do the public speaking that he was asked to do, and that's okay. But how many of us respond like my friend did? What'd you do this weekend? We did some stuff. Went to church. What'd you do at church? Oh, we sang some songs, heard a message, and we did some stuff, and we went home. How much more can we be in detail about what God is doing? You see, here's the thing. Humility came long before Paul was talking about it because here's the thing. Humility opened up Paul's eyes to see with great detail what was going on. And so if you're looking around going, I'm not sure what's going on. My question is for you this morning. Have you bought into an arrogant kind of living that is unconcerned about the events that are going on around you? That you walk in and, and you do your thing and you walk out with no thought of what's going on around you. Humility says, I'm going to take my eyes off of my schedule, my time, my preferences. I'm going to look up and I'm going to look at the needs around me. Of anybody who should have kept his eyes on himself, it should have been Jesus. Jesus had a lot to worry about. Jesus had a lot that concerned him. Jesus had the world to be concerned about and, and the redemption of his people to be uh, preoccupied with. And on numerous occasions we are told, and Jesus looked up. He looked up. Not to the sky. Because every time it says that he looked up, it says, and he saw the crowd. And then with great detail, what the writer of the gospel says is that he saw something in the crowd, either a person who needed healing or the condition of the crowd or something like that. Brothers and sisters, humility forces us to take our eyes from being inward and start looking outward. Who needs an encouragement? Who is seeing God work in their lives that I want to hear their story and hear in detail of what God is doing? It says one by one he related these things. Now, notice what it says after that. He related these things and he says, notice in the text, verse, uh, let's see here, 19. After greeting them, he related one by one the things that he had done and the great ministry that he had accomplished that couldn't have been done without Paul and his companions. You see that in the text? No. It says that one by one he related all the things God had done. You see, Paul had good reason to brag. Paul had good reason to boast. Paul had reasons because his ministry had been so successful. He had seen thousands of people come to know Christ. He had healed people of their diseases. He had exercised people of their demons. He had even raised people from the dead. Paul should have gone in from a human standpoint and said, listen, you need to listen to what I have to say because what I have done, nobody else can say they've done. I'm a celebrity. I'm important. 
But Paul speaks in such a way that Luke says, this wasn't what Paul had done. It's what God had done. Now, how do we know that that is what Paul said? Because notice what it says. It says, after he, they had heard this, verse 20, they glorified Paul. Mm-mm. They glorified God. Let me ask you this morning. You see, arrogance is far more than us just saying um, nice things about ourselves. Arrogance has to do with what do people, how do people respond after talking with you? And when Paul spoke about what God was doing in his life, people pointed to God, not himself. When people hear you talk, do they go away glorifying God or glorifying you? They go by thinking how great our God is or how great of a parent or employee or athlete or student or husband, or wife, or parent, you are. We need to be really careful with that. We need to make sure that with all that we say, notice Paul is spoken about in verse um, 19. It says, he related one by one the things that God had done among the Gentiles through his ministry. So it isn't Paul didn't say, listen, I didn't do anything, God did everything. Paul says, listen, I had a part in it, but God receives the glory. I'm the conduit, I'm the instrument by which God used, but it's God who's the one that's changing lives. I just get to be a part of it. Oh, how that would change how we communicate about our parenting. Oh, that would change how we talk about our promotions at work or the accolades in our school. If we were to say, it's all about God, and God is just using me as an opportunity to make sure the world knows that God does great things through average ordinary people. Humility recognizes the need to share about God's successes and not our own. Oh, how important this is for us as a church, for me and the elders. It isn't about our ministry. It isn't about our name. God's grown this church in great and many ways, and we need to recognize it's not because of us. It's because of the great God we serve. We've got nothing apart from the Holy Spirit. And so we need to make sure that when we speak, we don't speak about what the pastor and elders are doing or what Pastor Tim is doing or the giftedness of our leaders. What we need to talk about is we're broken down people with all kinds of dysfunctions and all kinds of issues, but we serve a great God and we want to introduce you to that great God because not only has He changed our life, but He can change your life as well. When we point people to God and His successes, we will help people to understand why they need the gospel. When we point people to ourselves, we'll make people think that they're okay like we're okay. We need to share about God's successes, not our own. Number two, we need to remain steadfast even when misunderstood and maligned. Humility is the guardrails that keep us from going off the cliff when people do things against us. In the text, everybody's excited. Paul's in town. Yeehaw, this is great. They greet, and one by one they share. And then I want to share something with you, and I'm just going to be honest with you. My assumption is that Paul is really, really great in this passage, and James and the elders, I think, have something left to be desired. And here's the reason why. First of all, notice what the text says. When they heard it, they glorified God. That's great. Good job, James and elders. Then they said to him, You see, brother, how many thousands there are among the Jews of those who have believed. They are all zealous for the law. I don't know if I'm right. And James and the elders can beat me up in heaven if I'm wrong. But I think there's some one-upsmanship going on. Notice some of the phrases that they use. First of all, you see how many thousands. Seems like an exaggerated statement. Notice that all of these thousands, all of them, are zealous for the law. Why would they say that? It sounds like two brothers are having a, "Uh uh-huh, what about this moment, right? So Paul has just spoken about all that God is doing, and they glorify God. That's great, Paul. But you know what? we got some good things going on here. we got thousands coming to know Jesus. 
And to make it better, better than the Gentiles, all of them are not only believers in Jesus Christ, but they are zealous for the law. (laughs) Now here's why this would have been an affront. Paul had brought with him, notice in the text, in verses uh, 15 and 16, notice, after these days we got ready, and some of the disciples from Caesarea went with us, We went into the house of Nansen of Cyprus, an early disciple, with whom we should lodge. And then it says, when we came to Jerusalem, Paul went in with us. There's a group of people. Now, we know who the group of people are from Acts 20 and the first part of 21. They're Gentile believers. And so what is being said by James and the elders is not a good statement. What he's saying is our disciples... They not only do what your disciples did, Paul, believe in the gospel of Jesus Christ, but our disciples who are Jewish, they're zealous for the law. What about your people? And in that moment, we've got a big problem. Because what you haven't heard yet is one of the greatest omissions in all of the book of Acts. Remember, one of the reasons why Paul was going to Jerusalem was to do what? Does anybody remember? Help me out, class. Give them money. And they've brought money. All of these guys have brought sacks of money from the churches, and they've brought it. And the people that they have collected this money from, some were in great poverty. We are told in in 2 Corinthians chapter 8 that out of extreme poverty, the Macedonian church gave generously. So here come the Gentile guys. Oh, we oh, bags of, of money. They've traveled with this money. It's not a gift card that you can put in your pocket. They've got to worry that someone's going to rob them. They've got to worry that someone might take the money and embezzle the money. And so they've gotten to Jerusalem and they set it before the people. And notice in the text, nothing is said about it. How would you feel you have dedicated, and maybe this happened this last Christmas, where you sacrificed and you saved and, and, or you invested time and energy in a gift and you br- brought it to the person you love and you had this idea, this picture, I can't wait till they open it up because it's going to change their lives, it's going to impact, and this re- our relationship is going to be all the more deeper and all the more sweet because of this gift that's been given. And the guys receive the gift and they say nothing about it. Humility allows you not to lose your cool. Arrogance says, how dare you? Do you know what we did to collect this money? Do you know the time and energy we invested in this? Do you know the impact that it's had on them? How dare you? We're not going to talk about another thing until you acknowledge the gift that's been given. That's an arrogant response. And you say, well, that's the right response. Well, in our human standpoint, yes. But Paul recognized that as they're sitting there with this great omission of saying nothing about the gift, That he's got Gentile guys watching and he needs to show them the road to humility, not the road to winning an argument. And some of us, and this is where I struggle big time, I care more about winning the argument than I do trying to win a person. I care more about winning an argument, winning a debate, than I care about a person's feelings. And Paul says, listen, I'm not going there. I have reason to go there. They have offended me. They've maligned me in this way. But I'm not going to go there. And what do James and the elders do? Not only do they omit that a great gift has been given. Now, by the way, just before I forget this, scholars believe that there's a reason why the Jewish elders and uh, uh, Jerusalem church respond in this way. And it is, number one, racism. That Gentiles had raised this money. And if Gentiles are dogs, then surely... Um, their money is of no good. Number two, they could have viewed it as a one-upsmanship by the Gentiles. Oh, look at what we've done. No matter what it was, is the gift was misunderstood. And it gets compounded by notice in the text that they move quickly from here. Look at what God's doing in our midst. And by the way, our disciples have a problem with you, Paul. He goes on and, and they say, they're zealous for the law and they have been told... They don't say by whom. They've been told 
about you that you teach all the Jews. That means everyone. That's an all-inclusive statement. I always struggle. Listen, when someone uses all-inclusive statements every time, all the time, everybody, all people, that, you, that usually means it's arrogance. Because what you're doing is you're trying to destroy anybody from thinking you could do anything else. So listen, everybody hates your guts, Paul. Everybody. It's glad you made it to Jerusalem. We want you to know they're all ticked off at you. Every one of them. Why? Because you teach all the Jews who are among the Gentiles to forsake Moses, telling them not to circumcise their children or walk according to our customs. What then is to be done? So here's what they do. They level an accusation against Paul. There's nowhere in all of the scripture, whether before or after, that that accusation is rendered true. So it's gossip. So the elders have just said, listen, people are gossiping about you. There's a story going around. We don't know who started it. But there's a story going around that all you do is tell all the Gentiles that they need to get rid of all things Jewish. Nowhere in the Bible does it say that that's true at all. Now here's the thing. James, elders, you know Paul. You were a part of the Jerusalem council. You know Barnabas, and Barnabas has spoken on Paul's behalf over and over again. Why didn't you tell the people, hey, listen, don't jump to conclusions. Paul's a good man. Give Paul an opportunity to speak. They don't do that. They say, hey, listen, Paul, you've got a problem, and we didn't think to even say anything about it. Have you ever felt the, the great blow of something being accused of you or gossip being said about you? And you find out that the gossip was shared in a circle of people that you considered to be your friends and closest confidants. And what did your friends do when they heard that? Instead of stepping in and taking those arrows for you, they took a big step back and said, oh, you're going to have to talk to him. Paul comes in and what should have happened is the elders should have said at minimum if these things are true let's give Paul an opportunity to speak on his behalf let him allow himself to be able to um, explain what he's done why he's done it they don't do that they say listen Paul people have a problem with you and you're going to have to fix it and we're going to watch you fix it we're even going to give you some ways that you can fix it but you're on your own we're not going to help you can I tell you that humility is needed when we are misunderstood and maligned. Because what arrogance says, this is what it says when, when someone maligns me or misunderstands me, who do you think you are? I'm Tim Bidall. I'm an important guy. At least that's what I tell myself. I work hard. You don't know what I have to do. You don't know the struggles that I have. How dare you Say something about that. How dare you malign me in that way? Now, does that mean we shouldn't be hurt when we're maligned, when we're mistreated, when we're misunderstood? No, we should be. But our defensive mechanism is an arrogant one, not a humble one. And what we do is, oh yeah? I'll misunderstand you. I'll malign you. I'll mistreat you. And arrogance says, I deserve the opportunity to do that. Jesus says, do not repay evil with evil, but evil with good. How do you do that? Humility. How could Jesus not revile when reviled against? Humility. Looking to the needs of others over the needs of ourselves. Thinking, I don't have to figure out how I'm going to fix my reputation first. What I need to do is I need to show love and affection and forgiveness and compassion to those that are persecuting me or misunderstanding me or mistreating me. We need humility instead of holding grudges. We need humility instead of getting into barroom fights. We need humility so that misunderstandings don't turn into mass chaos. Paul remained silent. And the reason why was the gospel was more important than his reputation. That's a humble way of looking at things. Notice finally, humility involves sacrificing personally so the mission of God can move forward. So here's their idea. They say, okay, you need to prove to the Jewish Christians, Paul, how Jewish you are. And we're going to tell you how you can do this. We've got a perfect scenario how you can prove your Jewishness to people. And we want you to do some things. Now, the Gentiles don't have to do it because it says in the text, we've already told the Gentiles in Acts 15 what they can and what they cannot do with regards to their interaction with Jewish people. This is not a salvation thing. 
this is a living life together, living in harmony with one another thing. And James and the elders tell Paul, there's these four guys that have taken a vow. No doubt it's the Nazarite vow. This would have been a very similar vow to the vow that Paul would have taken earlier when he's running to Jerusalem with his hair uh, in a bag so he can present it to the, uh, the priest. So he's already done this vow. So it's not that Paul needs to do something uh, all altogether new. He's already done this already recently. But they say, we want you to go and we want you to participate in this oath, in this vow. And we want you not only to participate in it, but we want you to pay for it. Not only your vow, but the vows of other people. So you've come into a city, you're looking forward to spending time with God's people, eating of good food and fellowshipping, and what they have said is, you're going to go and you're going to reside in the temple, you're going to dedicate yourself from eating anything that that should not be a part of it, you're going to cut your hair and be bald, and you're going to do so for a season of time, what most commentators believe was probably about a week's time. And so you've come to enjoy the city. You've come to engage with people. And now you've been set apart with these four other guys. And you're going to be um, put into the temple and hang out in the temple until the time of purification is over. And that wasn't what you were planning. That wasn't what you wanted. That wasn't how you were expecting to spend your money. And what does the text say? Paul does it. Paul does it. He goes and he gets his hair cut. He doesn't allow uh, anything that uh, a Nazarite wasn't supposed to touch to be a part of it. A Nazarite was not to celebrate during his time of an oath. So here he is with the people that he loves, wants to spend time with them, and now he's found himself bottled up in the temple, waiting seven days until the oath comes to an end. Why would he do that? Because of humility. So let me ask you, When it comes to your own life, are you willing to submit, number one, to the leaders around you? Paul submits to the leaders around him, and he does so because of humility, to submit to earthly leaders, whether government leaders, whether bosses, whether parents, whether church elders. It takes humility. Because every one of us thinks that we should rule the world. And when someone has been put over us, We don't like to submit. Paul submits. And I want you to know how he submits. Write these down because these are of utmost importance. Number one, he submits even though it goes against his personal feelings. Paul didn't want to do this. Paul didn't feel compelled to do this. Nowhere does it say that, boy, I look forward to go and and do an oath and pay for it. But he does it. How arrogant are our personal feelings? Well, that's not going to make me happy. Some of us came in with arrogant ideas today. Well, I hope this happens in the church. I hope they sing these songs. I hope the music's not too loud. I hope Tim doesn't preach too long. I hope, I hope, I hope, I hope. Those are all arrogant things. They're personal feelings, but they're all about you. They're all about me. Paul says, listen, this has nothing to do with what I want, but if it can serve the gospel and serve others, I'm willing to do it. Are you willing to sacrifice your personal feelings for the sake of others? That's the application. Number two, what about your plans? Paul gives up a week of his life to do something that he doesn't think needs to be done, but he does it for the sake of others. I'll go with the four, and I'll pay for them, So I'll give up money, I'll give up time so that they can accomplish what they believe they need to do to have a good and right relationship with God. I'm willing to do that for the unity of the church. Are you willing to change your plans for the sake of another? Now let's just be honest. Are you willing to change your plans for your spouse? Are you willing to change your plans for your boss? Are you willing to change your plans for the person that is in need of help? Our plans are arrogant plans. The fool says, I'll go do this, I'll go do that, and has his life all planned out with no thought of that God or someone else may need me to change those plans. Finally, the prerogatives. Paul had already done all this. And his desires and his his want was to be with the people, not to go and take an oath and hang around with four guys and do the Nazarite thing, to pay the temple tax, to hang with Jewish 
non-believers in the temple. They weren't all going to be believers. So they're doing this thing where non-believers are apart. And what does Paul do? Paul says, I don't want to do it, but I'm willing to do it. Because humility calls me to it. So what prerogative, what right do you have that you need to give up for the sake of another? Now why do we do this? Does Paul do it so at the end of this passage, and I'm going to close with this, at the end of this passage, does he receive an award? And the Kiwanis group gives the humility award to the Apostle Paul. Let's give him a hand. Is it so Paul can say, I'm so humble, I'm proud of it? That was a joke, only two of you got it. Why does he do it? The same reason you and I should do it. We shouldn't do it so people will look at us and say, wow, what a humble guy, what a humble gal. Write this passage down and I'll read it for us. 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verses 19 through 23 tells us why, and I'll close with this. For though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant to all that I might win more of them. To the Jew I became a Jew in order to win the Jews. To those under the law, I placed myself under the law. To those outside of the law, I became as one outside of the law, that I might win those outside of the law. To the weak, I became weak, that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all people, that by all means I might save some. Here's why we are humble, church. I do it all for the sake of the gospel, that I might share with them in its blessings. Why are we humble? Because as we are, we show the world who Christ is. And by being humble, we show the world that the walk of a Christian is a humble one. And as we show them humility, we show them the contrast of the world they live in and the world that we find ourselves living in. We turn the world upside down and we say those who think they are first need to become last and those who are last shall become first. And we begin as we do this to model the gospel of Jesus Christ so that others might participate in it. Sadly, we will get to heaven one day. And the great sin that we will have committed will be the sin of arrogance. And those that will have the sin of arrogance will be consigned to a place called hell. And here's why. Because arrogance will tell them they don't need a Savior. And arrogance will tell them that people didn't matter. And the two things that God is most concerned about is loving the Lord God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. You need humility to do that, brothers and sisters. But the second commandment is as good as the is the other, and that is to love our neighbors as ourselves. You can't do that unless you're humble. So if you want to be close to God, if you want to be close to others, then humility has to be our calling card. Paul has modeled it for us, and he did so sacrificing greatly. And you and I will sacrifice greatly when we choose humility instead of pride and arrogance. But when we do it, we allow an unbelieving world to share in the blessings of being close to Christ. And isn't that worth it? I think so.